you're listening to Art of the Flow. Welcome to Art of the Float, where float centers thrive. Uh, as always, this is our weekly podcast that tells our stories of running our float centers and where we like to give tips and share what's worked out for our float centers to help you run your float center more efficiently, boost clientele, have a better customer experience, all that good stuff. As always, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Art of the Float. And you can join the conversation by leaving a speak pipe on artofthefloat.com. If you're at a computer, it's the gold bar on the left side of your screen. If you click that, you can leave a voicemail. If you're on an iPhone or a mobile phone, you will need to download the app. And then from there, you can leave us voicemails while you're commuting on your way to your float center, if you like. As always, you can also go to artofthefloat.com to find show notes, links to anything we describe, photos, all of that stuff as well. I'm joined by my co-host, Amy Grimes of Float Nashville. Hi, Amy. Hey, y'all. Good to hear ya. And I'm also joined by Lance of the Float Shack in Red Deer, Alberta, Canada. Hey, everyone. I also want to give a shout out to Float Away. They're a sponsor that's been with us since the beginning. They've also been working in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Obviously, we're speaking with Justin tonight, and uh, Justin's very happy with with what they're doing. Uh, One of the most exciting things recently, actually, um, Colin spoke about at the Float Conference, was uh, getting the tiny vibrations that can come from you're not quite sure where uh, under control through his the vibration pads that he's designed that go underneath his float tank. It's not something that he wants to keep specifically to his float tanks, but um, he just wants to improve sound quality in, in uh, people's float centers. So uh, check him out at www.floataway.com. So getting right to it, I, I want to um, get to our interview with Justin. So this might be a little bit shorter than our usual amount of time that we chat about our weeks as we always find ourselves getting into so many interesting things. But uh, Amy, you mentioned right before the show that you did an annual flotation celebration. Yes. What is that? So this is my favorite time of year. Basically, uh, it's how we celebrate uh, being in business and for uh, celebrating the privilege of serving our community. Hmm. So basically what it is like everything we seem to do around the float uh, around float nashville is we are hooking up with a local a nonprofit, which actually mark my business partner happened to help start about 21 years ago now and they just happen to serve the community that we are in I mean, directly serve the people of the community that our float center is mm-hmm. in and they have this wonderful program called christmas with dignity um, basically they stock a store and the families that they serve uh, in the community can come in and purchase gifts for their kids that are involved with the after-school projects uh, at pennies on the dollar. These are families that don't have the money to normally give a really exciting Christmas to their kiddos. Mm. So basically what we do is for people who bring a an item off the wish list for the Cottage Cove Christmas with Dignity, we give them a really super low-cost float. We get a gift for Cottage Cove and mm. It is a time of year when we have a lot of new people coming in because it's really it's an opportunity to try floating at uh, at thirty nine dollars, which is probably the lowest price we ever do at Float Nashville. Nice. So not only do we get to help the community, but we get to meet a lot of new people, and it just kind of kicks off the whole um, holiday season for us. It just is, it gets very festive around <laughs> Float Nashville with lots of toys and items for kiddos so it feels really good it helps all of our morale kind of gets us excited for the holidays 
and we get to help a lot of people. So super excited to to kick it off and show some gratitude and just have fun. And that's really what it's all about. Cool. That's awesome. That's awesome, Amy. I love that creating these businesses gives us those opportunities to do the things that we couldn't necessarily do as individuals. That's wonderful. Truth. For sure. <laughs> right? For sure. Love it. Love it. Love it. Like, but really, oh. honestly, I'm so sorry to interrupt <laughs> you. Uh, really, I, my news isn't as exciting as finding out what y'all have been up to this week because I kind of got a hint, a little taste of what y'all have been up to this <laughs> week. And I'm excited. So, yeah. Dylan, yeah. what's going on? Well, uh, let's see here. I think the big thing for us was just um, taking photos. Uh, so, um, for our roundtable discussion that we did a few uh, weeks ago, um, I got some some nice lighting, so basically I can look, so you can see my face basically, and so <laughs> I have an umbrella light, which I've kind of always wanted anyways for photography, and I got a, a ring light, and um, all of a sudden I was like, oh, wait a minute, why am I just doing this for, you know, one hour, or, you know, a couple hours worth of time for a webcam thing, I could be using, bringing this into the float shop and doing some, like, real photo work, and We've had somebody who's designed our new website, and it's been just basically sitting there for a while waiting for a few things, one of those things being photos. So um, I took photos of our new Tranquility float tank, took pictures of our Nautilus float tank, and the, the most fun was taking pictures of Sandra, who is officially nine months pregnant in our Tranquility float tank. And so that was um, fun and uh, a real lesson in... Um, uh, I don't know how you, <laughs> I don't know exactly what to call it, but um, there were some like bright lights in her eyes in a float tank when you're just, you know, it's very peaceful and everything. And that's a place where you just totally let go. And then I have a light inches away from her face, super bright, um, which just looks great on film, but just like her needing to keep her eyes open, stuff like that. Uh, we had some pretty fun uh, giggle fights about that. Uh, so yeah. Good times, good times. And I posted a few on Art of the Float. I'll, I'll put them on the website as well. Those were just with my iPhone uh, camera, just to, like kind of show the scene and stuff. So um, looking at the actual pictures I took were really good. I'm, I'm really, I'm happy with myself <laughs> uh, with them. And uh, also got some shots of the lobby too. So our, our new old website will be uh, coming up here soon. So I'm stoked about that. Lance, how about you? Yeah, it's been a super busy week. Um, on Friday, we actually had um, an open house. Um, so we're, I guess this is a twice a year thing we're doing now. Normally, we're just doing it on our birthday sort of thing, um, beginning of July. But we had such success with it the last two times. We wanted to try and kick something off right before gift card season really picks up. So um, we decided to have it at the end of October, and uh, it was a great success. We've seen a ton of people come through our doors um we're able to get countless people through and show them the float tanks and answer their questions and sort of walk them through the um what we normally can't do you know when people are floating and we're all booked up so um, it was really good we actually had the number one sales day we have ever had in the history of our business so that was that was really cool and um we sort of ended that evening with uh a sort of party at the float shack before we went to a concert that evening. So we had some friends over and, and, uh, just winded the day in a real good sort of celebration, which, which felt good for working so hard for the upcoming weeks to, uh, the open house. Um, 
Yeah, it was May just I, really good. May I ask? Nice. Oh, please, Amy, go ahead. I was going to ask you, did you see a lot of new people, or was it a lot of people that had already come there? What would you say was the split uh, between new lar- and current? Largest majority of people were new people. Um, I think strategically that was I had about six targeted Facebook ads that went out a week prior, and they were all targeted to new clients. They weren't targeted to our Facebook page. I think I had one ad that was targeted to um, existing Um, people that like our page but the rest was trying to get those people in that have heard of us but they have never been in or they instantly said they're claustrophobic or they instantly said no i can't do it um but they've been curious so Hmm. um bringing all those people in showing them the tanks you know they're taking pictures they're laughing oh it's bigger than i thought it was oh great yeah yeah i'll definitely i'll book one right now so um really good day uh we actually I made some new gift cards, too. Um, I was supposed to get them done last year, get the PVC ones, but that never happened. And some things have changed with their branding throughout the year. So I just decided, you know, we were running out. I wanted some fresh. So I quickly whipped up um, a quick sort of business card style um, gift card. And I got them printed on this really, really cool material where it's, it's very soft. It almost feels like a velvet um, but it's a real sensory <laughs> gift card. So um, we end That's up cool. running out of gift cards at about, I think it was noon on Friday. We had two left, and I got the phone call that my gift cards were done. So I ran oh. down there, picked them up, and I think Matthew was checking out those two gift cards as I was coming in with the new box. So it was uh, it was one of those days. Um, it just it took a lot out of me, and uh, I've just been feeling it ever since. I guess you, you go hard for... A few days and it can catch up to you. But great week. May I ask yeah. about, so during our, our roundtable discussion, um, talking about having people um, kind of open houses or member parties, it can be difficult to get people in. It sounds like you you were very successful with that and you attribute that to your, your ads. Were they photo ads? Like, did you say, like, how, are you curious about floating? Come see what it's about. Or can I ask more about, like, how you got people well, in the door? Well, I think we have a we have a pretty loyal following on a lot of our social media streams. Where when question comes up and stuff, people often our customers get answering the questions that the customers answer us. It's really cool. So people became really excited um, for us shutting down for a day and you know opening the doors and having a sale. So we actually sold. Um, floats that day. Sorry, I didn't mention that earlier. But that day, one day only, $49 floats. You can put them on your account or buy them as gift cards. Um, But we also promoted our intro pack, which I think we sold, I think, the most of those, which that wasn't even on sale. It was, you know, we just, it's a good deal. And um, sold some memberships, too, I think, including a couple yearly memberships. So, um, yeah, um, you talked about asking questions, like, are you curious? I attribute um, social media, one of the biggest ways to engage with your clients is by asking a question, by narrowing down your market by your intro statement. So um, have you ever seen a float tank? You know, something like that where you're someone who maybe have seen a float tank, they may be interested by that. But if they haven't, they may also also be interested in that. So um, yeah, almost every post I do, I start by asking a question and that post is usually related to what that question is. Sure. Um, but yeah, just, just being really consistent. I did a couple live videos, oh, um, a nice. couple of recorded videos, 
and uh, email list. Matt sent out a, a email and yeah, just a few random targeted posts. So sounds great. Sounds like you guys tackled that thing very, very professionally. Uh, um, did you also discount online, or did you have to be there in person to get the discount? Uh, just in person. Cool. Nice. I, I haven't really pushed online very much, but that's one of my targets this year for gift card season is mm-hmm. to push gift cards a lot more online. And it's so much easier at your place of business. <laughs> so good. Yeah, that's that's what I'm hoping for. I still want to be crazy at my business because I want to be crazy online and crazy in my business. <laughs> right, I'm just right. hoping I can push both. Yeah. I'm not going to oppose people coming in and want to buy <laughs> gift cards. I have some... Uh, some pretty cool cards. ideas. Yeah, I got some pretty cool ideas on how we're going to present our cards to in some unique boxes and envelopes and and stuff like that. So I'm I'm going to be really excited to show you guys some of the the interesting ways we're presenting our gift cards this holiday season. Very cool. Uh, uh, next week we're going to have somebody on who is opening their float center uh, very soon, and so I think they'll be interested to hear about your uh, your marketing ideas here. We should delve more into that. We just want to take a moment here to give a shout out to Float Helm. That's the software that we use at the Float Shop to schedule, my goodness, they do so much. Schedule employees, schedule uh, floaters coming in, um, also using project software that's built into Float Helm. One way that we use it is for each float tank that we have, we just have a maintenance list. So if anybody um, notices that something that needs to be improved on a day that we're closed, it just ends up there, ends up in, in my inbox, and uh, I'm able to either do it myself or delegate it out to somebody else. I mean, that's just one of the, one of the small little ways that Helm makes your float life so much easier. You can check them out at floathelm.com. I want to get Justin on here. Uh, so let's go ahead and bring him on. Justin, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How is everyone doing? I think we're all pretty good. <laughs> good, good. Really happy. Getting ready for the holiday season, but we're all good. Um, so cool. I, there's so much that we want to talk to you about and um, go deep into a, a lot of information, what's going on at Liber and everything. But for anybody who, who doesn't know who you are or what Liber's all about, can you can you give a little primer on what your story is? Well, you know, we're, we're out here in uh, the middle of nowhere, Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> and um, as far as I know, we're, we're really the world's only uh, float research laboratory trying to understand how this uh, amazing technology works in both the body and the brain. Mm-hmm. And then eventually our, our goal is to really translate that into how this could help people who are suffering from psychiatric conditions and my focus is really people who suffer from stress and anxiety. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, in terms of a little bit of history, we, we started the lab about uh, three years ago. That's when I moved out to Tulsa. And it took us about a year, year and a half to finish constructing the, the float clinic. It's, it's comprised of two flotation pools uh, specialized for research purposes. And we finished our first uh, uh, study trying to understand what's happening in the brain of healthy people uh, by using the MRI scanner to scan their brain both before and after floating. And now we're beginning uh, the long haul, which is really translating uh, uh, this into clinical populations and people who suffer. So we're just beginning that research now. Okay. Can you tell me, when did you first in yourself see the connection between anxiety and floating? How did you discover that? Well, I would say that um, anxiety has always been 
an issue that that I've focused on from a research perspective, dating back to you know my early days in research, which basically commenced at the turn of the millennium. So I've I've been uh, doing neuroscience research now since about the year 2000. Um, has always focused on anxiety. So I've worked with a lot of patients who have anxiety disorders, both from a research perspective using tools like MRI to study their brains, but also clinically. So my, my degree is actually in clinical neuropsychology. I have a PhD in, in that. And I spent quite a bit of time, in, in fact, an entire year of my training at the VA hospital in San Diego, just working with patients who suffer from anxiety. So I've, I've always wanted to think about new and novel ways of, of trying to, to help these individuals. And, you know, floating seems like a very natural way of doing this. And I would say pretty much after my first float, I recognized its power and potential for this particular population. And it makes a lot of sense. I think you, you deal with a nervous system that's constantly being bombarded by external stimulation. And you introduce that nervous system to an environment without that external stimulation. Just by nature of that, you're going to enter into a state that reduces stress and anxiety. And it seemed uh, like it should work. Uh, from that theoretical perspective. But then what really struck me is as I started exploring this, all the anecdotes that were coming out of mm -hmm. different patients who were using floating mm -hmm. in some ways to self-medicate mm -hmm. and treat their own anxiety. Mm -hmm. And that was very powerful because it suggested that the theory was onto something. Now, the problem is anecdotal evidence isn't empirical evidence. You really need to see if this replicates in a larger population and you really need to see if it's not just helping people, but are there instances where it could actually hurt people? Because you're dealing with such a fragile brain when you work with these patients. Hmm. And so I think a lot of what needs to happen now is, is to do those empirical studies and see if the anecdotes actually hold true. Okay. And that's what you've been doing. That's where we're starting mm -hmm. to do it and will be doing <laughs> for a while now. Whew, fantastic. And so... Um, on tonight's episode, I'm a little um, on the fence on how exactly we should proceed because you, we, there is a video out on, on Float Conference. If you go on YouTube, uh, you gave a great speech as there are also, uh, Pan Lin gave a speech. Uh, there, there are a bunch of speeches that come out of LIBOR or related that are really awesome. There's so much good information in there. And I'm not 100% sure how much we should cover on tonight's episode or how much we should assume people have already watched their video, uh, your presentations, if they're out on that YouTube page. But um, is there a way that you can maybe briefly summarize or bring uh, a listener who hasn't watched those up to speed? Sure. I mean, <laughs> I, I guess I've, what did I say? I, is this my fourth year <laughs> presenting at the conference? I think this was, yes. think, yeah, I, yeah. Wow, I can't believe that. <laughs> Time flies when you're floating. Um, yeah, so I mean, my first speech uh, back in 2013 was really just trying to outline why I think floating would be helpful for anxiety. It was more theoretical. Right. Um, talked a little bit about some of the past research that has been done, but it also spent a lot of time talking about what needs to happen. Uh, the second 
presentation in 2014 was just talking about how we build a research lab to study this. Because we're we're currently the only people in the country doing this, there, there wasn't a lot of precedent to follow. And Colin Stanwell Smith from FloatAway uh, had to come out to Tulsa and spend um, a good chunk of a year. His home is in England, but he lived, basically lived with me in Tulsa for a good chunk of a year, uh, customizing these tanks and, and just uh, uh, really fitting them with all these different sensors in order to measure the experience. And so I think that 2014 conference was really talking about what went into the building and construction of the clinic. Um, 2015 was just touching on some of the first uh, fMRI data and how floating was affecting the brain. And then this most recent year, we, we finally had a complete data set. And we, we spoke about some of the significant findings we were, we were getting in the fMRI data and how these findings actually related to the subjective experience. I think that's really one of the most exciting parts of this past year's conference. Not only were we seeing these changes in the brain, and not only were these changes specific to floating and not our active control condition, but they were relating to the subjective experience of reduced anxiety and enhanced serenity. And that was really exciting for me because it suggests that we're tapping into the mechanisms of this very profound subjective experience. And so um, we'll see, you know, the, we're, we're still, I would say, just scratching the surface in terms of the data that we have. And over the next wow. year, wow. we're going to hopefully have all this data finished being analyzed and the papers wow. starting to, to trickle out. Okay. Cool. So that will be exciting, but yeah, we're 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 finally building up steam here. Now that the construction's finished, now that our first fMRI study's finished, now that we're beginning clinical research, I think uh, the you know if if I could use uh, uh, the the analogy of a car driving, you know, the first years we were just puttering along, and and now we've built up steam and things are really starting to roll. Uh, and uh, you can feel free to pat yourself on the back on this one if you'd like to, but uh, this is happening a lot. This is happening quickly as far as the realm of, of research goes. Is that, would you agree with that? Um, yeah, mean, absolutely. The construction I, I, of a float center, gaining the data, breaking it down. I mean, had I tried to do this any other institution, and I, I was actually thinking about other places, and, and there, was, there was one other uh, uh, college that was recruiting me quite heavily and I was thinking about it. I don't think I would have been able to do it at this pace. Uh, you know, a typical institution, it takes a year or two just to start construction because you have to go through a hierarchy of people to sign off on it. Um, Liber, you know, we started construction within six months of me arriving. So it, it, it's just a level of efficiency you couldn't get at any of these larger institutions. It's one of the nice parts of working at the Laureate Institute for Brain Research. It's a small nonprofit uh, research institute, and it doesn't have a lot of red tape, and it doesn't have a lot of hierarchy. So it allows us to function at a much more efficient pace. Got it. Can you talk to me about my new favorite topic, the default mode network? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, well, it, it, it's a fascinating question. It actually goes back a little bit to the early days of John Lilly and Jay Shirley 
philosophizing about what is floating. You know, the the original questions that inspired Lily and, and Shirley to sort of come up with the original float tank were about what happens when the brain goes into a state of rest. What happens when the brain's not being stimulated by things like vision and hearing? Um, if you remove all forms of external stimulation, does the brain just go to sleep? Does it go into a state of coma? Do you cease to exist? And these were the questions that, that really got floating started uh, over 50 years ago. And the default mode network in some ways is related to that because when functional neuroimaging started in the 1990s and really in earnest in the 2000s, we were really interested in what happens when the brain does something. So when you show the brain some interesting picture, what happens to the visual cortex? Or when you hear sounds, what happens to the auditory cortex? And typically when you do functional neuroimaging, you have an active task where you're doing something, seeing something, hearing something. And you compare that to a non-active task where you're not doing anything. Typically, on an fMRI task, you're just like looking at a screen and uh, doing nothing during those off periods. Mm -hmm. And so when you right. analyze for what's happening in the brain, you take the on periods and you compare it to the off periods. And what was happening is pretty early on, late 90s, early 2000s, all the neuroscientists doing this research were realizing that the off periods had a tremendous amount of activation. And they're like, what's going on here? <laughs> And it's always the same areas. Why are these areas activating when they're doing nothing? And so then the concept of the default mode really became popular because what they found is there's a network of regions that are on when you're doing nothing. And they but call why? it default. <laughs> well, good question. <laughs> called it the default mode. Uh, other people call it, you know, the resting state. Hmm. But it suggests that there's a lot of things happening in the brain that are occurring in the background all the time. Even um, in young children, I mean, they, the default mode is so ubiquitous, they've seen it in infants. So uh, uh, Dylan, your baby right now <laughs> has a vibrant default mode, I guarantee you. Okay. And it, it, it seems to be an important state and they're not sure exactly uh, what it represents. They're not sure of the exact function of it. Mm -hmm. But what we do know is it's there all the time and it's percolating behind the scenes and it seems to be most active when you're not doing anything. Um, a couple other things we know about the default mode. It's highly active during uh, self-oriented thinking. So whenever you're sort of daydreaming or just thinking about your life or things you might have to do, or things that happened in the past, or maybe having just thoughts about yourself. This area, our, our network of regions, is also highly active. So it seems to be involved in things like rumination and mind wandering. Okay. And the other thing we know about the default mode is it's hyper-connected or hyper-active in some ways in people who suffer from things like depression, where ruminations and thoughts about the self tend to be highly negative and tend to be perpetual and constant. 
So you take a, a case of pretty severe depression. This is somebody who is, is uh, in a perpetual state of self-oriented thinking. And it's all about the things they can't do, all about the hopelessness and helplessness of life, how inadequate they are, how, uh, um, how problematic their life is. And what they find in their default mode is that the hubs of the default mode, especially the medial prefrontal cortex, are in a state of hyperconnectivity. And that seems to be related to this enhanced sort of self-oriented thinking that goes wrong, becomes dysfunctional in states of depression. Okay. So that's kind of a little overview of, of the default mode. I think we're still learning quite a bit about what it's doing, about these brain regions, but it's probably one of the most reliable effects you will see in any functional neuroimaging data. Okay. When you're doing nothing, this set of regions comes online. And when you're done floating, that is reduced. Is that true? Well, that's what we found. It, it, it's a really fascinating finding. Um, what seems to happen is uh, the, the anterior hub of this network, an area of the medial prefrontal cortex, seems to reduce its connectivity with all the other regions of the default mode. This includes areas like the posterior cingulate and precuneus, but also areas like the intraparietal cortex and other areas of the frontal lobe as well. And so this primary hub of the medial prefrontal cortex does seem to shut off its connectivity with other regions post-float. Okay. And what's fascinating is this wasn't happening in a more simple state of relaxation where we had people just uh, rest in a very comfortable zero-gravity chair with the lights off. So it's specific to the float pool and doesn't seem to uh, transcend the float pool into other uh, basic states of relaxation. Okay. And just as an aside, that's also been something I've really enjoyed since the float conference from uh, your speech was the difference between chair rest and float rest is as a business owner, I am so happy there's a difference between those two. I really <laughs> wanted to see that in a measurable uh, st statistically significant way. Uh, and so, um, yeah, that's great. We, we had a, a team from Nike in the float shop uh, a few days ago. Probably should have brought that up at the beginning of the show. And um, they were talking, it, like it was kind of percolating up. Like, is there really, what if you just sat in a quiet room for 90 minutes? I could see that question was about to come up. So I was able to get ahead of the curve and direct them towards, A, your speech, uh, and also just some information about how there there is a markedly different uh, effect from being in the flow tank rather than being in a super relaxing chair for 90 minutes in the dark. So um, I'm excited about that. <laughs> so Yeah, it's important. I think, you know, um, the control condition it, it, in some ways is just as important as the active float condition because you, you really want to try to understand, you know, how is this operating differently than what you could get pretty much anywhere else on your own couch, in your bed, in your bathtub. Mm -hmm. And at least from, from our first experiment, there does seem to be some pretty systematic differences. If I can get, I don't know if this is, it, it might spark some controversy, I, I don't know exactly, but um, there's a drug that I believe you referenced at the float conference that has a similar effect. And I, I, do you know what drug I'm referring to? I don't want to say mm -hmm. the name because I think it might be the wrong name. And I want to- I'm not maybe, sure. 
Was it, I, what, are you talking about the anti-anxiety yes, medication? Yes, uh-huh, yeah. Uh, is it diazepine? Is that the right name? Mm, if, it, if I'm remembering the slide correctly, it was probably lorazepam or Ativan. Lorazepam. Oh, Ativan, is that right? I yep. think it might have been Ativan. <laughs> you could probably say any, any name of drug out. and I would. Okay, thanks. <laughs> yeah, right? So basically, I just want to... Um, I've noticed some float centers are using that as an endorsement of floating. And uh, I know the care of what's going on in the research facility is incredibly important to you as it is to all of us. Um, you know, what kind of things can we be talking about? What kind of things can we be claiming? I know nothing is published yet. So, you know, you, you did say certain things at the float conference. So can we repeat those things? Like how much is it like, you know, on float, uh, I was going to say facilities, uh, float collective, uh, behind the scenes, can we share these ideas and how much should we be talking about that to our customers? And one of those things being, you know, this may um, provide the same benefits as an anti-anxiety medication without some of the detriment or side effects. I think, you know, the, um, it's a little premature to, to make those claims. I would say that, you know, uh, first of all, we don't have a very clear grasp of how anti-anxiety drugs are working in the brain, period. We, okay. we know the, the neurochemicals that they're working on, the neurotransmitter systems. But in terms of the brain regions, we're still just scratching the surface there. So it would be very hard to say that floating is, is having the same exact effect as an anti-anxiety drug. Okay. The other thing that we haven't done yet is the people who take anti-anxiety drugs are people who suffer from anxiety. And we haven't done uh, the, the, the seminal study, which is really take a group of anxiety patients who are being treated with anti-anxiety drugs and take that same group and instead of having them take their meds that morning, have them float. <laughs> right. And get a head-to-head -head comparison yeah. as to whether uh, floating is doing something systematically different than the anti-anxiety drug or the same, or is it a matter of degrees where one works a little bit better than the other or is more powerful than the other. Mm -hmm. You know, that study would be the important study to be done in order to make the claims that maybe some of the float centers are making, which is to, to, to say that floating is doing something uh, better than an anti-anxiety drug or the same as an anti-anxiety drug. So I, I would say it's premature to make those claims at this point. I think we have some preliminary evidence that it might be hitting the same systems. And I think, um, you know, that preliminary evidence happened in healthy brains. Right. So let's, let's wait till we do the research with anxious folks and wait till the proper comparisons are done before we make those sorts of claims. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. That might be a good segue to ask, where are we at now? I think at the time of the float conference, we had a complete data set. So what's happening today at LIBOR this week, this month? <laughs> good question. Well, uh, Pan Lin, uh, Dr. Pan Lin, yeah. who, who gave an excellent presentation mm -hmm. about the default mode, mm -hmm. um, is, is uh, rapidly working up the complete data set. So we, we have now finished that study uh, we, we went from 40 people to 55 people. So we nice. made an even larger study awesome. and, uh, he's, he's cleaning up the data. It's amazing how much work goes up, 
goes into just the cleaning of of the fMRI data. Oh. And he's finishing the complete analysis. And you know, our hope is by uh, hopefully the end of this year, we will have a paper uh, submitted to a very high profile journal. I won't say the name yet. <laughs> Did you say by the end of this year? Yes. Wow. Okay. <laughs> nice. So, so that that is forthcoming. You know, the, the the peer review process is arduous and painful. I've been through it many a times. Wow. But okay. a little bit of luck by by early next year, we're going to have a, the first official float fMRI paper in press. How how long does the peer review usually take? It all depends on which journals. Uh, I've I've submitted to journals that take over a year. Oh wow. Uh, which is horrible. Uh-huh. Um, I've also submitted to journals that take a couple weeks, so you get a large range and typically if your paper doesn't get into the first journal, you, you usually, uh, resubmit for another journal and go, go through the whole thing all over again. <laughs> so it is, it's a long process. It could be very frustrating, but, um, I have high hopes that actually it's going to get in and the results are very striking. They're very powerful. I think from a, a statistical point of view. And my hope is that uh, a reviewer will see that and hopefully it will get in. If I can pry a little bit more into that peer review process, um, are they going back to you and asking follow-up questions? Or, I mean, how, what is the, what makes it difficult or what's the process look like? Well, typically what happens is a, a journal editor will review the paper first and make sure that it's a good fit for the journal. And so long as they believe that the paper has merit and could be a good fit for the readership of the journal, they'll then initiate the peer review process, which usually means they'll send it out to anywhere between three to five experts in the field. Now, that becomes a little difficult because we don't have much of a field of floating. Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask. Right here. <laughs> That's right. You guys could be the uh, reviewers. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's that's part of the issue is my my paper would probably be reviewed by fMRI experts. Oh, so these are people who, for example, study the default mode, okay. um, and they would they would understand the the fine grained details of how are you supposed to analyze this data? How are you supposed to control for varying factors? Are you doing your analysis in the appropriate way? Is your subject population you know well screened? Are your conclusions merited based on the data you're showing? And they'll give you critiques on every minutia of the paper. And if they think you overstated the case, mm. if they think you had a flawed analysis, if they think you had a flawed design, they'll make it very well known. <laughs> and the editor will then read all the reviews and make a decision. And usually the decision could be anything from reject, we're not interested, go send it somewhere else, mm -hmm. to uh, accept which is pretty rare on the first round, mm. to somewhere in between, which is usually a revise and resubmit, which means here's some critiques. Can you address these critiques, mm -hmm. uh, revise the paper, and then resubmit? And then it goes through another round of oh. revision okay. and another round of critiques. And then usually the reviewers, after a certain point, say, I think you've addressed everything, and then the paper will either get accepted or rejected. Wow. Okay. <laughs> So it's a long process. It's a back and forth. And, you know, like I said, it could take anywhere from several weeks to I've seen some peer reviews go for several years. Fingers crossed we don't have that. <laughs> and, 
and this isn't your first your first rodeo, so you do know what you're getting into and how to prep your uh, your paper before it's submitted. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, it, one of the nice things is, you know, I've been doing this for so long. I think I I have over thirty peer reviewed papers at this point. Wow. So trust okay. me, this process is no fun. <laughs> I I don't wish it upon everybody, but it does get easier with prep. Okay. Well, I think that answer is actually. We have a few questions from uh, the float community here, and one of them was, "How well does Justin believe his research will hold up under peer review?" And it sounds like I, I think that answers the question. Um, yeah, I think you know we we put a lot of of work here at LIBOR into making our studies as rigorous as possible. And, you know, part, part of the advantages of being at LIBOR is we have some excellent state-of-the-art equipment. And on top of that, we have some very good researchers. I think uh, you've met some of them, uh, Kyle Simmons, Saib Khalsa, Martin Paulus. And we have a whole range of other researchers like Yeji Berderka who are experts in their own domain. So, Experts in fMRI, experts in oh. psychiatry, experts in functional connectivity. So I'm getting a lot of high-level guidance, if you will, from all of my colleagues. And so I think we have a very good shot of, of getting a nice peer review and, and holding up through that whole process. Awesome. So that question – oh, sorry, Lance, please. Oh, I was just going to say I have a, a bit of a question about the actual – float experience that these people are going through. Um, we often give walkthroughs and introduce our clients to the float tank and they're peeking through our website and they sort of get to prime themselves with what's going on. Um, when they enter uh, your facility, are they primed in any way from before going in the float tank or do you tell them to breathe a certain way or think about certain things or how do you introduce them to that environment? Um, especially, well, I guess you're just starting to work with um, those that actually do have anxiety and stuff, but uh, I'm just curious how that all process works for you guys. Well, you know, we learned a lot from people like Dylan. Uh, Dylan was actually out here a couple years back. In fact, I think it was two years ago. Exactly. Sounds about right. right, Dylan? Time means nothing to me at this moment, Justin. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, but yeah, so we, 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 we sought a lot of help from, from other float uh, center owners about how they introduce the experience. And we do spend a lot of time uh, introducing the folks to their first float and making sure they're well acquainted with everything. In this first float fMRI study, in terms of instruction set, we really left it pretty wide open. The one thing we did tell people is to try to stay awake, okay. um, mainly because we, we, we wanted to have somewhat of a homogenous reading on the brain scan. And if some people were sleeping during their float and others were awake, that would cause some, some error signal. So we did tell people to stay awake, but beyond that, we didn't give them a heck of a lot of instruction. We tried to keep this pretty similar to a float that people might have at somebody else's center. It was 90 minutes long, though. Mm. Um, in our anxious populations, we're doing some other things. So I think it's very important to, to let them sort of reign, the, reign over the experience in terms of control. Mm. We want them to have complete control over everything, when the lights are on or off, how long the float is, uh, whether or not they want music playing or some sort of guided breathing and I think a big part of our thought process with people who have anxiety is let them take baby steps to the full immersive experience. Don't push them too fast and let them build up to it at their own pace. And then when they do 
eventually get to the full immersive experience, I think it will be a lot different than if we tried to say, do it right away from the first float. So um, we're building on that, we're working on that. And I'm guessing by next year's float conference, I'm gonna have a lot more concrete answers to give you Lance. Okay, thank you. So I did want to just mention that the question about peer review was from Andy Zaramba, and he had a, another question about how likely it is that the preliminary preliminary findings will be substantiated at the scope as the scope of research increases. So I would say that the answer is absolutely yes. You know, a big part of my program of research is going to be replication. I think in order to get any scientist to believe anything you do, they want to make sure that it replicates. So we are actively going to be doing replication studies. And the other thing is, I don't know if um, everyone remembers, but we, we try to look at the effects at the individual level. Typically, when you see analyses, all you see is group level analyses. So you'll see graphs of, you know, on average, this is what this group did. On average, this is what this group did. But what we're actually doing is going down and breaking the group into the individual subject and seeing, could we see that effect at the individual level? And during the presentation, I actually showed some, some graphs, some bar graphs, where you could actually see subject by subject what the effects were. And I was really struck by how well uh, the effects separated the pool from the chair group. And so my sense is that... Um, you know, the replication studies will hopefully bear out what we're finding in some of these initial studies. But until we do the studies, you never know. Awesome. This is uh, from J.D. Summerlin. He's curious. I'll just read the whole thing. I'd love to find out if there's any action we can be taking to urge acceptance of float therapy by the insurance industry, health-saving programs, etc. I know his study results will be huge in getting us there eventually, but surely there's something we can be doing to help it along as well. Is there something we as float centers can be doing to help... Uh, insurance or uh, wellness programs? You know, it's, it's a great question. And unfortunately, I think at this early juncture, it's going to be an uphill battle. Hmm. You know, a big, a big part of how insurance companies decide what they will actually um, reimburse for is based on research studies. They want to know that something is clinically effective for whatever the disorder of interest is. And the way they typically determine that is based on randomized clinical trials or RCTs. And unfortunately, there hasn't really been much in terms of RCTs and flotation. There just hasn't been enough researchers and most of the research that was done happened in a time period where RCTs weren't really happening yet, or at least not very commonly. So. It's, uh, it's incumbent upon us as an industry to do these RCTs in a proper way and show that for whatever the ailment, floating is having a significant effect and it's having an effect above and beyond what you might get from, say, placebo. That's important. And if you could establish that, then I think you could get insurance companies on board. Now, one RCT, of course, is never enough. You know, Typically, if you want a treatment to be considered legitimate, they want to see at least two or more RCTs and typically at different laboratories to make sure. sure it's not some idiosyncratic effect to that specific laboratory. So it's going to be an uphill battle. But my sense is, you know, these are the studies that Liber is interested in pursuing. Okay. 
Okay. And over the next few years, we're going to be conducting some of our first RCTs with anxiety. Mm. And pending those findings, you know, I think we could revisit that question and ask, you know, can we make a solid argument to an insurance company that this is something should, that should be reimbursed? Okay. Now, that's one aspect. The other aspect you spoke about is wellness. And Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act has a significant section in there for wellness and preventative care. And I do think there could be some push from the community to try to fit floating in amongst other forms of wellness, say yoga or meditation or acupuncture. And there, the burden is a little bit less. I don't think you necessarily need uh, the full-blown RCTs, replications, and so forth to get a, a reimbursement for some of these more wellness preventative care treatments. But I do think it, it's going to take a huge push to sort of get the industry to budge in terms of insurance. But we'll see. I, I think it, it is a goal of mine, of course, that if the findings bear out the, the, the hypotheses, we're going to hopefully one day, maybe five, 10, 15 years from now, be able to say, yes, we can reimburse for flotation. And yes, a doctor could write flotation down in their prescription pad and hand it wow. to the patient before they hand them a drug. That's amazing. Now, if, if that was to happen, uh, <laughs> this may be a little bit out there, but um, there's a movie coming out in, um, <laughs> I think, next year, and it's called A Cure for Wellness. And it really portrays, I guess, some aspects of, of the floating world, I guess you can say, because it's not really float tanks. But it perceives it and looks like a very scary and dark way. Um, but in the float collective, uh, throughout conversation, some people feel that there may be, this may be some sort of pushback from pharmaceutical companies. Since if floating is, is to, to grow and all these people start using it as a powerful tool for anxiety. Um, do you think there's going to be pushback from the, the pharmaceutical world? <laughs> well, let, you know, it, 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 I know it, it's, it, it's somewhat of a conspiracy theory uh, at this point. I, I, I know of no information to suggest that any pharmaceutical companies even know what floating is. Okay. But, <laughs> but, but I think it's a worthwhile question to ask because... Let's, let's, let's talk about some of the things floating could help with. Pain, sleep, anxiety, maybe depression, right? Now let's talk about the medications that are the most prescribed medications on earth. Sleep medications, pain medications, anxiety medications, and antidepressants. So if you add up the amount of billions and billions of dollars that goes into those four lines of medication I just spoke about. And you could show that floating is having a similar effect when it comes to improving sleep, reducing pain, reducing anxiety, improving depression. Well, now I could see pharmaceutical companies <laughs> opening their eyes and saying, oh my God, um, there goes our bottom line, but, um, it, we're, we're still a ways away. I don't think we're on the radar screen yet, but I could tell you if we could show any change in those domains that I just mentioned, 
that's big news because all of those medications are overly prescribed and they're highly addictive. They cause a lot of side effects. And to be honest, some of them don't even work. You know, not uh, it's a little bit off topic, but one of the other hurdles we have with the insurance companies is unless we can prove that it's so much more better than the drugs, insurance companies are always going to go for the cheaper option. Or at least that's been my experience. And if they have to reimburse floating at a higher cost, mm-hmm. they're going to fight. Well, you. we'll see. I think, you know, the, the these drugs, you know, um, for the most part were sometimes discovered serendipitously. And these companies, you know, market it for one condition, and then next thing you know, they're going to market it for a dozen other conditions. And the effects, I've looked at uh, some of the basic studies and meta-analyses, and they're not that much better than placebo, to be honest. (laughs) So just to give you some concrete examples, uh, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, for example, which are the most ubiquitous treatment for depression now, and also anxiety. There was a chunk of studies done by pharmaceutical companies that never got published. And the reason they never got published is because they didn't beat placebo. (laughs) So I'm not saying that these drugs don't work. There clearly are quite a few studies where they are beating placebo, but it's not a huge effect, you guys. And it doesn't always provide that magic bullet that people are hoping for. And in fact, 50% of people who take these drugs aren't really finding it that helpful. Mm. So when one out of two people isn't really getting a lot of benefit, that's a large chunk of the population that's finding these drugs to be lackluster. Not helpful. Okay, so, okay. so you know, my thought here is... To know. You know, maybe uh, uh, we could do some head-on-head comparisons between flotation and the drugs and see, let's, you know, let's put them, let's put them into the same battlefield and really see, you know, what is floating doing? Is it doing something as good as these drugs? Or maybe it's doing something even more effective than these drugs. And there you really start turning eyes. Because if you do an RCT where instead of a placebo, you're comparing it to an active treatment, now when you find a significant effect, and if that significant effect goes above and beyond your active treatment, Trust me, all of the mental health providers are going to start opening their eyes. But those studies, you know, uh, are a little riskier to do because you, of course, have the uh, other end of it, which is you don't find anything or you find that it, it doesn't work as well. But I think it's a, a risk worth taking because, to be honest, we're in this uh, cultural uh, uh, milieu, if you will, where we're totally over-medicating society. And we're doing it with drugs that really aren't that great. So that is the first part of our Justin Feinstein interview. I hope you enjoyed that. How did you guys enjoy that? That was some fantastic information. Mm. Getting excited all over again for uh, for what we do. Some good stuff. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 pretty cool having someone like uh, Dr. Feinstein uh, here on our podcast, and it's really cool because he's he's just like a float owner. He's so passionate about right. what he's doing, and you know he's he's worked all day and he's staying late to record this with us. So very cool story. Excited for uh, everyone else to catch the other half uh, next week.
no kidding, right? I, I think, uh, like, sometimes we ask a question, and I, I think it's going one direction, and we end up just, uh, I don't know, doing a whole whole 180, and where, where he takes things I, I find very interesting. And like you said, we'll, we'll hear more of that next week as we keep diving deeper into, into LIBOR floating and, and the future of float research. And as always, guys, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Art of the Float. And if you make our, your way over on over to our website, you can click the bar on the side and leave us a speak pipe. It's a fun little voicemail where you can uh, share your message on the podcast. So, Awesome. Thank you, Lance. Thanks to everybody for joining us. Thanks to Justin. Again, we'll pick that up again next week. Remember, there's an infinite amount to find in the presence of nothing, so spend some time there. We'll see you next week.